This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. Welcome to part two of my conversation with songwriter, performer, storyteller, author, and radio personality, Tom Rosnowski. If you missed last week's part one, simply go to WFHB.org, pull down the WFHB programs menu, and select Big Talk. Then click on the podcast. One of the many things Tom's done in his life is write the book, An American Hometown. Terre Haute, Indiana, 1927. We ended last week talking about the fading of small towns and mid-sized ones too, and how Tom walked through local cemeteries to get an idea of how people lived their entire lives in those towns and were defined by them, and vice versa. Let's pick up where Tom Rosnowski and I left off. Those individuals who were born in these towns of 2000 and died there and they had very complex lives and very rich lives but we look at that now we can't possibly imagine anyone could be satisfied or fulfilled by being born and dying and having lived their full life in one town now you go to europe and many of the countries there have a very strong, continue to have a very strong identification with small towns. The integrity of the small towns is much higher than through much of the United States. People commit to living there still and enrich the town. I, I will say, though, that the times that I've been out playing around Indiana, a lot of people I've met who have that commitment now to small towns. They, and these are tiny places, probably not more than a thousand people, but they have an integrity. As you said, Michael, you know, you go around the square and you see these beautiful buildings, these beautiful churches that are underused, small congregations, but they have a real beauty to them, a real substance to them. You know, Bloomington's not that small a town anymore. It's got some small town aspects to it. And it is becoming a large town, and many people want it to become even larger. You came here in 1976. What brought you here, Tom? Music. I, I was playing with two guys back east. We had a little folk band, three of us. And I was writing, starting to write originals for the band. And then they took off. I took off. Neither of us were in town back east where we had grown up and gotten to know each other and where was they, that that was in albany they eventually came out both of them came out to indiana university huh. they were going to school there and i was uncertain about what i was going to do next i was traveling around the country and i stopped to see them and uh, ulterior motives and all that one of them was able to get me a job uh, working in the bookstore at the university. And I met my wife, Tricia, and stayed. They're gone. But I fell in love with Bloomington, I think, because it embodied 
the best aspects of a small town, it continues to be very walkable. You get to know people like you and I know each other. Right. Conversations and so forth. But at the same time, because of the university, there's a global presence to it, whether it's in the restaurants on 4th Street or individuals that you might hear speaking a different language as you walk down the street. That's a wonderful combination of qualities for a place where you wake up every day. It's reassuring. Now, you and your lovely bride, Trisha Bracken, continue to live together. You're still together. You're like the last couple on earth that's still together, aren't you? (laughs) Oh, we've been together a long time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, well, we've been around long enough. I I can lay claim to maybe four decisions I made when I was in my 20s that were really good decisions. And one of them was staying with Trisha, meeting her and her all this time. And I was in my 20s. I didn't know anything then. I knew nothing. But that was a good decision. One of the things you like to say is, is that you and Trisha live a short walk from the graves of Hoagie Carmichael and Ross Lockridge Jr. Rose Hill, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of great people buried up there. But late November, as you know, Hoagie's birthday. Yeah. And uh, I'll go up there on his birthday. And a little ritual that I usually have, I'll sing him a song of his own composition. I will put a coin in the engraving of his grave. There, 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 I was there, there a couple days ago. People do that on occasion. And um, I'll also bring a little flask. Those are three things that were very important to Hoagie. Money, music, and whiskey. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you know this, but a, a few, a, maybe it was two years ago. Hoagie Carmichael uh, Jr., Hoagie Bix Carmichael, came to town, and he was on my show. And I learned, I had no idea about this, Tom. He was the producer for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Wow. I didn't know that myself. Can you imagine that? Wow. Well, that Hoagie, as you know, appeared on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Uh He had a short segment there where he played piano. Of course, Fred Rogers was a magnificent piano player. Sort of like Richard Nixon and Jimmy Stewart were both excellent piano players. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were both fine. And, and uh, yeah, so Mr. Rogers uh, had him on, and they, I guess they might have sung one of Hoagie's songs, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, the only other story I know about the gravesite, Hoagie's gravesite, is... Uh, when Bob Dylan came to the auditorium to play uh, a few years ago, it was a union board concert or something. So they assigned someone from the union board to him to make sure that he had what he needed. And and, uh, there was a sound check and they had finished with that. And uh, the young woman went up to Dylan and said, uh, is there anything I can help you with? during your stay in Bloomington and Dylan said, yeah, he says, yeah, I, isn't, isn't Hoagie Carmichael buried here and he from Bloomington? And she said, she thankfully knew who Hoagie was. And 
She said, yeah, yeah, he's, he's buried on the west side. And he said, let's go there. So she gets him in the car, and they go up there and leaves him in the car while she goes to the little office that they have on the corner of uh, 4th and uh, Davidson, I think, and finds out where the grave is. And they go there, and you know, Dylan just stood and was silent for a little while, and then went back. He did his show, but huh. yeah, he, he, Bob has a, a real reverence for the American Songbook. He's put out a number of discs where he sings songs from the American Songbook, and yeah, that that's the <laughs> those are the masters, you know, in terms of writing and both melody and lyric and structure and everything. Those are the, those are the people you study and listen to. I didn't until later. I was writing before I really knew that stuff, but I, I listened to Broadway when I was a kid and that's pretty close to the American songbook. But yeah, Dylan has a great affection for the uh, American songbook. My guest on big talk, Tom Rosnowski, the songwriter, the performer, the storyteller, the author, and I might add, able to do a darn good impression of Bob Dylan. <laughs> oh, anybody who picks up an acoustic guitar and sings a song of their own composition, Michael, owes an enormous debt to Bob Dylan. I had better have a good Dylan impression in my portfolio. The Nobel Prize winner in literature, too, Amazing. That, that, was really, that was really a celebration of a generation. Well, yeah. Bob's been writing a long time. He's still writing great stuff. Yeah. The, the, guys, the guys, the individuals who I admire and revere have been doing it for years. Uh, Randy Newman's another one. Um, I was listening to his recent album i think it's about two years old now dark matter and uh there's stuff on that album uh wandering boy for instance that stands aside anything he's ever written uh, and, and dylan gosh uh his his last album uh rough and rowdy ways was outstanding just outstanding speaking of songs written by outstanding songwriters. I understand that there's a song called Hank's Heart that uh, a few years ago made the top 10 on the European country chart. Yeah, and that's sort of a song like being the, the best ventriloquist in North Dakota. <laughs> well, that, if you, before you start, that song was written by you and I wonder if you can tell me what the heck the European country chart is. Well, it's a reflection of the fact, as we were saying earlier, that one of the greatest exports that America has had to the world is music of various genres. And it's revered globally. Uh, there's a huge market for bluegrass in Japan. Uh, there why, is bluegrass in Japan. Why would that be? I, I have a theory. I'm not entirely sure. One, uh, it, it, there are some outstanding instrumentalists who are uh, from Japan 
who play fiddle and banjo, uh, breathtaking in terms of their uh, capacity with the instruments. But beyond that, my theory is that banjos sound a, a lot like classic Japanese stringed instruments. So it, in a sense, there's a resonance there. But as far as the European country chart, well, sure there's one because they have a different, they've always had a different interpretation of American culture than Americans do in terms of what value they place on certain artists. Um, and it, it varies by country. It's not just Europe. Um, Spain, for instance, doesn't have any particular market for Americana music, which is just the genre that I'm in. Um, Italy does, the Netherlands does. Uh, but I, I think inevitably you, you their country radio or folk radio, and my first album um, was distributed to a number of small radio stations that had specialty shows and uh, they would play the record and it was sweet. Uh, there was a Twisp, Washington. Where's that? It's a little town somewhere, I think, in the eastern half of the state. They played the tar out of one song of mine, uh, Stewed Cucumbers. And Hanks there made an um, appearance on the charts. Uh, in Europe, I, I could never tell where it was played. That would have been fun. <laughs> but I did get a response once from a radio station in Siberia. <laughs> and it was very, it was sweet. I, I guess it was an email. Yeah. And, and the individual uh, was very fluent in English, wrote me a nice little note about uh, how much he enjoyed uh, the disc and um, the songs on it. Yeah, it's a big wide world, and why wouldn't you like this this music? I mean, it, it Americans, I think, value their past. They do, but the only thing that they really have a reverence for, I think, is governmental institutions. You know, like the Constitution and. Are, are branches of government and so forth. Those are inviolate. They don't want to mess with those. Yeah. And people's reverence for the very rich culture, cultural history that we have had with books and music and movies. Oh my heavens. There's, there's so much out there. It, it is something to read. So much of it is outstanding and so much of it has been either overlooked or undervalued for a number of reasons but i'm always stumbling across songs and movies that i didn't know about before and i think wow um what a fine piece of work and i hope that always happens tom rosnowski has put out three album discs and has contributed to another. His three are A Well-Traveled Porch, Voice Beyond the Hill, This Place in Time, and he contributed to Wilderness Plots. Uh, in addition, Tom, 
you have performed with or been on the stage with at various times the likes of John Prine, Lyle Lovett, Richard Thompson, Jillian Welch, and David Rawlings. I wonder, as you know, we just lost John Prine this year, thanks to COVID-19. Do you, do you have any specific memories of John Prine? I opened for John in Chicago at Park West and then met him a few years later because I was writing in Nashville with a publisher and the head of the publishing company was an excellent songwriter, Roger Cook. Roger had written, uh, I'd like to teach the world to sing, which a lot of people remember as the Coca-Cola jingle from years ago. And, and that was uh, the, the final scene in Mad Men. Oh, okay. The creation that. of that, that jingle, yeah. Oh, a nice payday for Roger, I hope. <laughs> yeah, it well, Roger actually co-wrote a number of songs with John because John was living in Nashville at that time, and, and he stayed there for the rest of his life. And he was living in Roger's neighborhood. And uh, Roger and he penned a number of charted country songs for George Strait, um, Don Williams, and uh, wonderful stuff. And I got to meet, when I was working with a publisher, I got to meet John. Uh, we went out to dinner one time, and a genuine individual. You know, uh, that's a burden to carry, being John Prine. Uh, yeah. Creatively, it's a burden. Personally, it's a burden. And he navigated it with grace and polish. Tom Rosnowski has won an award from the Society of Professional Journalists for a short film documentary series called Memory Chain. Yeah. yeah Memory was... Chain, Tom, what was that all about? Well, um, let me see. How did that work out? I needed work. <laughs> I needed work. That was it. Yeah. And I got a grant. <laughs> Uh, I was working with Suzanne Schwibbs, wonderful documentary film director. And I pitched her this idea that we would, I, I hope this isn't too long. Go right what ahead. What happened was there were a collection of, it was like a panoramic camera. They used to use it with a banquet camera. They used to take huge crowds of people from stem to stern. And you could fit like 250 people in one photograph by using this slow exposure rotating camera. They would use it for a variety of things, but ultimately, lines of people, battalions, and so forth, this would be perfect for capturing all of the members of that group. So there were a collection of circuit photographs that were discovered. They had been initially donated to the Indiana Historical Society, but they didn't have any place to store them. They were on nitrate film, so they were very volatile. And they were worried about how they would deteriorate. So they were looking for cold storage. And Crane Naval Depot said, we have some cold storage. You can put them 
in our facility. Well, this was back in the late 70s, I think. And with changes of administration on both sides, the photographs, they were negatives, had been forgotten pretty much. Well, finally, uh, administrator came along and Crane discovered these, got in touch with the Historical Society, said, hey, do you want these? And by then, the Historical Society had moved to their new facility, which had enormous archival restoration facilities for photographs. They were very eager to get them, but they couldn't identify them because there were no logs. They were all from a small studio in Terre Haute. So they called me. They said, you know Terre Haute, can you identify some of these pictures, even though we don't have titles or dates? So I went up there to Indianapolis and on a couple of occasions and looked them all over. Some of them were fascinating. Mostly they were fascinating to me because they were individuals who gathered in small community for reasons that don't exist anymore. Huh. And you could tell whether it was a little company picnic or a lodge that had gotten together for a little outing, whatever, and, and they wanted to commemorate it with a circuit photograph. So, yeah, I, I, I looked at these and I thought this would make a good uh, series. So I talked to Suzanne Schwibbs and she said, yeah, let's do them. It had to be short form. So they were. And, you know, Michael, I've been doing this a long time. When I say this, creative expression, and my time signature, I noticed that the essays that I have on porch light, memory chain, hometown, my songs, all between two and a half and three minutes long. All of that. That must be my time signature, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's like a major league pitcher, you know? You want to have it, you know, you wind up throwing whether it's a fastball or a little slider or whatever, you know, between 82 and 90, somewhere miles per hour. And, yeah, that's, that's where I'm comfortable. You've seen him around town, I'm sure of it. He's the man in the fedora. Right now, he's wearing a gray fedora. It is after Labor Day. And, and I wonder, do you no. hew to those, uh, uh, those rules about uh, light and dark uh, fedoras? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, fedoras, there's a straw season. You know, Michael, when I was doing hometown when i was researching hometown i discovered there was an ad for a men's store the newspaper and they were proudly proclaiming straw hat day <laughs> which was may the 15th i didn't know that that's when you can start huh yeah yeah it's like labor day you stop wearing white yeah and and you start wearing straw hat men would start wearing straw hats straw fedoras and boaters i would imagine on May the 15th. So yeah, I, I have straws for the summer and um, I never get too many of those. And then felts for the winter time. Maybe one day the rest of the country will catch up with you and start wearing fedoras again. 
It's such a beautiful look. It reminds me uh, in a lot of ways of film noir and uh, Robert Mitchum wearing a big fedora with a big brim and, and tilted oh so perfectly and oh so rakishly. Yeah, yeah. You know, men's stores back in the day. Now, Mike, your your face, the you know, the fact that you have a goatee and and the shape of your face, a good men's store would look at that and yeah. they'd say, Oh, you need this width of brim. The crown should be this high on your fedora. Or they may even say to you, Well, you know, you shouldn't be wearing a fedora at all. You should wear a bowler. A bowler yeah. would look better on you. And and they would know these things. This is a skill set that has disappeared. Right. I was aware back in Chicago, there was an, a hat maker uh, who actually custom made fedoras and other hats, boaters, what have you, derbies even, for people. And he had a machine that he placed on your head and adjusted a bunch of little screw type things that essentially created the dome of your skull, recreated the dome of your skull, and he would then make the hat to fit that recreation. That's right. Pretty neat stuff. It was an art. It is. It has a lot to do with how far apart your eyes are set, yeah. your cheekbones, uh, the width of your chin, that sort of thing. The man in the fedora, as I say, Tom Rosnowski, the songwriter, the performer, the storyteller, the author. Tom, you can tell a story. You also can get people to tell their stories. No, no, actually. Uh-oh. That's not true. I'm terrible at it. I've, I've been asked on occasion, just as spur of the moment, to tell a story, and I can't do it. I, I can't. I'm not very good at that. I really am not very good at that, which is sort of like a comedian who can't tell a joke. Yeah. Or a, a singer whose pitch wavers, but I just can't. I, I, I I'm oh, I'm okay. I've told stories since I was a kid. And I was better at it when I was a little kid. I used to entertain my friends with stories quite often that I would just make up out of my head. No, I need, I need to write it down, Michael. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't write it down first. It doesn't have any substance. It's like my list of things to do during the course of a day. I tell Trisha, if you tell me and you don't see me write it down, it doesn't exist because I need to write it down to make sure I remember it. Very much like me. I've mentioned this before. Uh, as a writer, the way I look at it is if it isn't written down, again, like you say, it doesn't exist. It just is in, in the atmosphere and it's gone. Poof. Imagine how many great stories, how many great life experiences have been lost over the course of history or just in the course of two years in Terre Haute, Indiana in the 1920s because people didn't write down the story. Yeah. Well, we did something here, whether it was tell stories or not, something happened. Tom Rosnowski, our guest here on Big Talk. Tom, I thank you so much for being on the show. Michael, I enjoyed this very much. 